We're now going to have our first session on um, art. And I welcome to the stage Tom DeFreston and Ray Tallis. <clears throat> So Tom and Ray kind of sprung this on me a couple of weeks ago. They sort of, they sort of said, you'll, you'll be on the stage. Don't look surprised. We know. Um, so therefore, I'm going to spring things on them, which I haven't told them about as a kind of... Um, we're going to talk about art, and I'm going to put up a slide to begin with that I haven't told either of you about. Great. It's nothing... Worrying. Can we have that first slide? Is it embarrassing? No, 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 it's nothing embarrassing. So this is an image... Um, from the Chauveau Caves um, of paintings that were made, I, I believe, and I've, from my reading, about 30,000 years ago. Um, and they're extraordinary whenever I look at them in, in many ways, not, just, not least because of the beauty of them and what, what appear to be great artistic talents, but the fact they were done that long ago and that the impulse towards them. And I think some of what we're going to be talking about this morning what I'd like to start us by thinking about, really, Ray, is that that artistic impulse, the need to do that, has been present in humanity for a long time. Very much so. And there's two things that strikes me about this. One is it's capturing the fleeting moment. Right. It's very dynamic. The beasts are rushing mm. past. And the other thing is actually about capturing things that are, actually, are elusive. Because mm. I think one of the drivers to art, and perhaps we might discuss it, is the very nature of human consciousness, mm -hmm. of the fleetingness of the moment. And uh, you can see that it had other purposes, of course, mm -hmm. by capturing the image you were hoping to capture the beast itself. Mm -hmm. There was a certain amount of magic thinking mm -hmm. uh, in, in cave art. Mm -hmm. But um, that is, I think, you've touched on something which is constant in our appetite for Does art. Does it surprise you, though, either of you, that that's 30,000 years? Yeah. That, that no. It doesn't? No. Come on, Tom. Um, so if you think of sites like Boxgrove and Swanscombe in, uh, in Britain, mm. sites of the oldest human remains, mm. the, that shift that people normally suggest is the moment that human consciousness awoke is when we started to fashion tools Around rather than fine time? tools. Before this time? Before this time. Yeah. It was an earlier that yeah. shift of making a tool. Yes. But the imperative is similar in that we're starting to look to craft things initially for function. But what's very clear is that at the heart of human consciousness is a desire to express something. Now, these cave paintings, as, all, as, as art historical methods shift and develop, new interpretations keep arising, yes. all of which fail really to grasp necessarily what they're about. Because in a way, that loss always happens. You can never get back to understanding exactly why they were made. But, but is there a sense then, so you both talk about... Um, consciousness and, and capturing the fleeting moment, yeah. some functionality in there. <clears throat> I mean, and I know we're speculating here, but that's, you know, I guess why we're here. Is there a sense that this has, that at heart, this was a response to function, that I need, to, I need to make something, or was it, in fact, something creative, trying to capture the fleetingness and represent it? I, I mean, there's always going to be a multitude of purposes for art, just like there are a multitude of arts. Mm. So, probably all of those, all of the above. <clears throat> the other thing that perhaps may have fed into your surprise is how realistic it is. Yes. Mm. And we always think of realism as something had high points, you know, Greek classical sculpture or Renaissance art and so on, and to have realism so early 
is perhaps something that was implicit in your surprise. And the 3D-ness of it, and the beauty of it, actually, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. The, actual, the actual beauty of the images. Um, it makes me think of um, so a similar-ish time, or a very, 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 very early sculpture of things like the Venus of Willendorf, that's about so big, and they're, we're pretty sure um, they were made by women, and made as ritualistic, um, either pre-birth or post-birth. And the fact that they're hand-sized, si- so you can get the sense, and you know, it's that working through almost a hymn, which doesn't suggest necessarily a, obviously, any kind of structured religion, but it expresses that in some way they're using art as a way to think beyond. I want to come on to Ray's point about um, capturing the fleeting moment with... Um, can we put on my second surprise slide, actually? Uh, so this is, um, in fact... Um, there. This is, um, in fact, taken from Tom Lubbock's book, having spoken to Marion um, last night. And he's talking about this image. Um, so this is El Greco's Boy Lighting a Candle. <clears throat> and I'm going to read what Tom wrote here. Um, El Greco's Boy Lighting a Candle shows a boy blowing on an ember. It's an action that, while it lasts, can be perfectly steady and show no change. The passage of air is invisible, the pursed lips the glow of the ember, the hold of the hands, all these things can stay as they are for a while. It is movement without any movement to be seen while it lasts. Of course, this process can't continue forever. His lungs will soon run out of air. Who knows how much puff is left? We can't tell, but it can't last. And when the boy's breath fails, the ember will fade too, and the whole scene, lit entirely from this light source, will revert to darkness unless he can get the candle to catch and hold onto that light in time. Mm. Which strikes me as important. <laughs> There's an awful lot in that, isn't there? The movement without movement, for example, is very much Aristotle's definition of what form is. It's something that actually moves and yet remains still. Mm-hmm. You can see that very obviously in musical form, mm-hmm. uh, but you can see it, I guess, very much in the form of art when as you scan around a piece of art, you, you, you animate it, and, uh, uh, but the artist is anticipating where your gaze is going to go, and out of that movement you create something that's still a, p- a pure form. I mean, there's many other things in what mm. he says, but that's mm. one thing that mm. picks up. But actually, t- am I talking rubbish no, about no. art? No, no. We, we wonder so. if we are, because we, neither of us are creative people, and you are. Well, Ray that, is. I'm not. That <laughs> process of, of how a paint... So, so painting in particular, I think, deals with... Um, obviously the paradox between, between the fact that it is static and still and permanent and that often it's depicting things that are in motion. And it deals with, often very successfully, with dramatic moments in flux, such as this image does, so moments in shift, um, where they can really get the most out of the drama of that shift. And I'm, I don't can know why. Can we pull your painting up while we're talking, actually? Can we put Tom's painting so up? So I'm reminded of, do you remember Joe Shutcott's poem last year about the slow loris? Um, where it starts reaching out for some kind of fruit, and then the fruit got moved, but it carries on Mm. reaching. Mm. And those types of moment, painting does really well with. So you'll often have, such as the picture we previously had up... That's definitely not not for me. Um, uh, Often we'll have moments that are not, you know, let's be as, as simple as the hand not being here or here, but shifting in between, so we get the sense of the shift of the animation of the pregnant pause. And what's the action, then, as a painter? So you, 
And this is a big question, but what, it, what actually are you in an image like that, which is, to me, movement and space and time and, and, and you know, human longing, how does that all, what are, you, what are you doing in that process that is against, it feels as if it's a press against mortality, broadly conceived, mm. what's happening? And do you mean in the process of yeah. making it? Or yeah, the process intention? of making it. So I've, I've no interest, for instance, in, in, in what my intentions are. Yeah. Um, partly because I don't think you know when you start yeah. the process. I'm interested in a, sec a set of methods mm. that explore things, and mm. you hope by the time you get to the end and finish up with a still image. Mm. But um, what are you trying to explore? I, th I think you're trying to explore time in all kinds of ways. So it might be in the, the nature of a, the pose of that central figure in the bath. It might be the way in which you have this weather system or storm system come in and look to interrupt or degrade the architecture. So to take one example, let's think of the figure in the center. So often, well, in this painting, I look to find a, a stage set, if you like, where I could perform. And so I found a, a bathroom, um, and then I set up a tripod, set up a camera, and then I enter it as an actor would an improvised performance, and start just positioning, in this case, sometimes an actor, in this case myself, in various positions. And I was interested in trying to find a way, by having this angle from above, a way to describe a figure who the entire compositional structure of the painting is talking about them falling, mm -hmm. but the, the architecture of the image in represent, representational terms, we know they're not, they're obviously sat within a bath. So it's, the composition is amazingly simple, obviously, it's a top to bottom taking off from deposition images of a figure shifting across that divide. So that's a structure that runs throughout Western, well, and beyond Western art history. Um, what structure is it? So what, just in, in, what do you mean by that structure runs throughout Western art? So, it's a, so if you think of Christian iconography, so you think of the deposition of Christ, and almost always it's a case of exploring the split between a bottom half, a, a top half and a bottom half, and a figure who is positioned across that threshold, shifting with the weight of gravity moving across. So it's dealing with that sense of a literal fall, but a kind of a metaphorical fall of the of the body, of flesh and spirit, of in various other forms. And that's a well-recognised thematic that runs across. Western it is. Art. I mean, the definition. I mean, I, I think it's a totally successful work of art. I mean, I have privilege. You sent it to us in advance. I've, I've been staring at it and staring at it, <laughs> which I guess is what you hope I would do. And it, I think it's extraordinary. And it does illustrate several things. I mean, one is. If art has any function, it is somehow to connect the small details that detain us with the big facts that enclose us. And so the, the mythological dimension is very important, and locating a bathroom is almost a kind of joke in a sort of way. But of course, you've got other, th other things going on. And one of the other things is looking at taking an angle that defamiliarizes things, and so you unpeel your gaze. I mean, that's just some of the reasons why it's successful. The other thing you touched on was the love of the craft and the love of the material and the love of the stuff itself. And that's something that I think art is about, the sheer joy of working with stuff. Um, it's true whether you're a writer, whether you're a musician, or whether you're yourself, you're working with very literal stuff. And all of those things, I think, are, are evident in what, to me, is a totally successful, really wonderful picture. But the effect on us as human beings in the presence of works of art, so we talked a bit about you, your action, the, the intention of art, the effects on us are not um, rational effects. 
necessarily completely. So, and so listening to Melanie singing, mm. looking at that, um, it, it's hard not to feel an emotion that is somewhere between longing, sadness, a sense of our brevity, joy, all in, all together, which feel important to me in a recognition of our finitude. What is that effect? And what is it that great art, whatever, we won't, we won't explore what that means, but what is that effect on us? What work does art do on us in our brief lives? I mean, if you could define the effect from within the language you use to describe other things, then the art has failed to some extent. Mm. It just seems to me, why do we have art? And, I mean, there are many reasons. I mean, uh, iconography, patronage, religion, and so on. But parking those up, perhaps what is constant, is a desire to perfect our experiences. I mean, the present tense is a bit of a bugger. I mean, it seems to me that it's both elusive and inescapable. It's elusive because by the time an event has been completed, it's already in the past and getting past it. But it's inescapable as well. We sort of tend to be fastened to this small position within our lives. And I think art tries to address this very unsatisfactory nature of human consciousness. I mean, it's a luxury to feel that consciousness is unsatisfactory. I mean, when you've got toothache or hungry, that's a different matter altogether. So art, in many ways, is clearly trying to say, yes, this is past, but let's grasp it as if it were still ongoing. And at the same time, let's connect it with the bigger things. I was thinking Sally's wonderful story, how much you got compressed in your 20 minutes. You've got this huge world. She made so much that was portable, mind portable, experience portable. And I think that's one of the things that, that art uh, gives us. So to compress and communicate. To, to compress, communicate. to communicate, to enable us to, to dilate our consciousness, to look mm. beyond the present moment but somehow still hold, take hold of it. I mean, this really is deeply suggestive, this painting as well, and I think art must suggest rather than state. I think one of the big problems about conceptual art is it does a whole pile of stating and no suggesting. So as why well as, should it just yeah. suggest rather than state? Because I think statements can occur outside of art, um, and I, th I think it's very important. For example, the supreme art, all art, aspires to the condition of music. The supreme art is in, uh, music is entirely suggestive. Music has no reference. Great music. You may have some reference as a secondary thing, as in uh, songs and so on, but the, what is central about music is it conveys meaning and significance without specific reference. And that, I think, is the model for all art. And although Tom can say what this is about, in inverted commas, he knows, and I feel, that actually it's about more than what he's saying it about. So you mean it has to operate pre-rationally, pre... Is that what you mean? What do you, what do you think, yeah. Tom? I, I think you can often try and unpick the rational explanations for why a, a work of art has a particular um, impact upon you. I think the, the type of question you've just thrown out there, you have to be careful. We, you can so easily get into kind of general cliché truisms, sure. and hence why actually sometimes working out uh, what, what art does to us and what its purpose is, almost going right into specific examples and trying to understand them, maybe gets us closer to those bigger answers in a way. Yeah. But as Ray suggested, say with Melanie's piece of music, that you know, I think each art form has its unique properties of ways in which it can deal with the unrational. And, and music's ability is that it's often totally towards the abstract. What about its general... So you've talked about the fact you can take an instant and in that instant infer other instances, all instances. What about other perspectives? Is there a capacity, and this is a question that you know, the medical humanities um, world as such in, you know, explores, and that, that art will present us 
with other worlds. Joseph Conrad said, my, my duty is to make you hear, feel, and above all, to make you see, as if somehow through the written word I can present you with the world. And that may or may not have educative, moralizing value. Yeah. And you've written about this, Ray, and I know you have views on this. Can art bring us other people's perspectives meaningfully? Well, I'm sure it can. I think the, the types of things you're discussing often what happens is people want to find a way in which art can be functional or instrumental, and they want to rationalise and quantify how it can do those things. And often, therefore, you have a drive for art being made to do those things, and um, it often leads to quite clumsy, clunky art that is yeah. in no way instrumental. And I absolutely believe art and culture is instrumental, but it's in all kinds of very complicated ways. Just say a bit about those complicated ways. In that they might leave kind of echoes or ripples like you know it's not a, it, it's not as simple as a case of someone goes to see a performance or look at a painting and we go they leave having achieved these outcomes and change be changed in these ways you more hope it's one little pinprick amongst many that shifts and forms them their ways of thinking their ways of feeling their compassion their empathy and that, that's measured over a long period of time. And, of course, it can do, but it doesn't follow, of course, that it will. You did brilliant. You quote the Chekhov short story in mm. here of the, um, the, ladies, the, the wealthy lady sitting and listening to, you know, educating, beautifying opera whilst her coachman freezes to death. She's weeping death. over the tragedy in the opera and her coachman... It's a Tolstoy story, yeah, Tolstoy, but you're absolutely right. right. Sorry, yeah. Yes, you're quite right. And I think it's true. I mean, I have huge problems with political art. It's usually impotent politics and bad art, basically. And, uh, uh, I mean, if, if, for example, we want to scream about the, the willful destruction of the NHS, which is going on even as we speak, the last thing you want to do is write a sonnet about it. You want to basically throw a brick at Jeremy Hunt. Uh, and so, I mean, which is sort of a... Thank you. I know that was a cheap shot, but I was well rewarded, yeah. And, and a work of art. And a work of art, absolutely. It was, yes, it was an action painting. But it just seems to me that... Um, uh, Tom and I are clearly of one mind, and I suspect you are as well, uh, but the, 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 uh, as regards political art. But the question of working further upstream, widening your sympathies in a non-specific mm. yes. uh, way. I, about that, I don't know. I mean, George Stein has written very poignantly about this, you know, how um, concentration camp guards would behave brutally uh, in the daytime mm. and then listen to mm. Schubert Lieder in the evening or sing lullabies to their own children and so on. So I'm not entirely sure that art will, in that sense, educate our sensibilities always. And sometimes art can be used very willfully to make people behave but much more But all that badly. argument says is it, it needn't necessarily follow that art exactly. will achieve. It doesn't show us that it, but de facto, can't. Exactly. And in a way, going back to your question, I mean, the great thing about, say, fiction is that it's, as Bakhtin said, it's a polyphonic form. That is to say, many voices are heard. And all voices, when they're speaking, are central. And perhaps in one's own life, you know, we hear only a few voices. So the fact that lots of voices, lots of viewpoints are uh, given their time in the sun is a very important function of art. But whether it makes us better people, that's another matter What does altogether. it do to our understanding, given this weekend, of our mortality? What does it do... Actually, and in a way that is... I, I can't not listen to um, Melanie singing a piece like that mm. and not feel, fra you know, fragile, questioningly, questionably significant and awed. Mm. What does it do to our sense of mortality? I think... So, 
think of Melanie's song, for example, I think voice does something inc just incredibly powerful because it's the you know, thing we all have, the thing we use for language to express ourselves. Um, it's interesting that when, when quite a few people have been talking yesterday about moments of death, and we often think of the, the last moment as the last breath. And I think that's, I think that's quite important. That's why, um, in a way, what Melanie was doing, it's, you know, it's an emotional outpouring of what it is to be alive, to exist in that body of the air moving through it. So it's, it's expressing that in simple terms, isn't it, really? It is, and I mean, uh, listening to what Melanie was singing, it's the sense of our universal and common vulnerability. Mm. You know, for that period, I'm Cleopatra, mm. or, you know, we are both under the same edict of transience. And one of the things that Tolstoy says, that an artist, whatever she or he is thinking about, is always thinking about their own death. They're trying to shore fragments against their ruin, and so on and so forth. Unsuccessfully, of course, uh, not only because... Uh, in, as a matter of fact, artists die, but also because their works are in competition with other artists mm. and their signal becomes part of the general noise. noise. Mm. And one of the quite worrying things is we have such an accumulative heritage of art now mm. that all the dead are competing for our attention. Mm. You know, and many of them didn't get it. You know. in, in a world, though, that is um, str struggling in many quarters to, to be fed, to survive, um, is it finally a luxury? Or is it a necessity? Mm -hmm. mm. I, it's something, so I'm, because the paintings I make are, you know, that painting is about that size, it's a large old thing, um, and they're exhibiting galleries and they're sold and they go off and either in collections or people's houses. Um, and I struggle with that, actually, that there's something totally undemocratic about the form that I happen to have been working in. And so it's for that reason that I've started to also work on other things such as graphic novels, things that can have a, a larger audience. Um, you know, the, the art world is, is so focused on not even a global 1%, but a kind of a 1% even in the art world in Britain, let's say, in Britain. And of course that's hugely problematic. You're having, you know, you go read every single artistic statement and it's making some grand political, philosophical claim about caring about humanity and in their actions, they're not necessarily really giving us stuff because you're, making, you're wanting to make sure you shift the stuff and get some cash in your bank. And I think that I don't know the answer to that, but it makes me amazingly uncomfortable. But can we distinguish between the, com the commercial world of art, perhaps, which you, you know, I can, we've talked about your um, ambivalence around that, and the impulse mm. to it? And Ray? But, I mean, art has always been a scandal. How, mm. an, how dare people spend time mm. creating art mm. when there are children dying? Mm. How dare these characters paint, spend time painting on the cave when they should have been getting out there and you know, yes. getting their dinner? Yeah. I mean, it's just a disgrace. It must have taken a long time. You know. So uh, in that sense, but there are much bigger scandals. There is, for example, sport, which is wall-to-wall -wall futility, which absolutely fulfills 24 hours a day. You know, oh, thank you. Yeah. Another cheap shot. Yes, <laughs> I'm playing the audience now. But it just seems to me that um, there have been... There are, and so I think Tom has much less grounds for guilt yes. than Lionel Messi. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but it's interesting, isn't it? We, so we, the other thing that was being discussed yeah, actually on Friday at the student event was the role of medicine. And mm. so there was discussions about is its aim to keep, keep us alive for as long as possible, mm. to make mm. us immortal. And the conclusion... Uh, seems to be, I've probably clumsily got this wrong, that our attention, if it was possible, 
would we be better on making the quality of all of our lives, and obviously as many people's lives as possible, as dense and as rich as is feasible. And art, you know, that's the role of art and culture, that it makes the depth of our survival and our experiences greater. That's really important. I mean, and of sport. Uh, uh, well, sport maybe, yes, yes. I mean, uh, endless interviews with Jose Marino may be the contrary case, I mean, uh, <laughs> or make the contrary case. But it just seems to me that um, there is a, the kingdom of ultimate ends, questioning those ultimate ends, has always been an embarrassment in a world where people don't have the means to live. When the kingdom of ultimate ends, as he were, was mopped up by religion, somehow you could bring those two things together, you know, how you should live to support others and what you expect of the meaning you ascribe to life, came together. But it's, it's more difficult in a secular world where clearly art doesn't deliver any kind of salvation and in, in that sense. Um, and so I feel it is problematic, but I think there are many more, much more problematic things. Tillywink, sport, all that sort of stuff uh, is much more pub- problematic. Why is sport more problematic, for instance, than than art, like in some ways does it not fulfill the exact same, so you mentioned Lionel Messi, so you know no one, I don't think there's anyone would disagree that someone being <coughs> on 300,000 pounds a week is um, morally uh, acceptable, but, uh, unless it's if, me, unless, in, of course, yeah. but you know if I see him on the pitch and suddenly taking the ball and shifting past someone and exploring and understanding space in a way that is far beyond my capabilities, and to me, that's, it's just a work of dance that's happened. And so in, in what ways is, is that performance any different to, let's say, Suba's wonderful dance that we saw snippets of yesterday? I think the infrastructure behind it represents massive opportunity cost. The human attention has been switched from something that is absolutely fundamental, but perhaps that's a personal thing. Perhaps it's interesting I can't you say that, Ray, because in the book, in, um, in um, Black Mirror, you talk about how, in fact, <clears throat> with age, you've noticed things that you'd have sort of commented on as being trivial mm. um, expenditures of time, you now, in fact, are almost in praise of yeah. because of their dwelling meaningfully in what you might have once thought of as unremarkable and quotidian. So I wonder if you might actually, in another few years, shift your stance on sport. I have no problem with, with, with low-cost trivia, you know, <laughs> a, a sort of jumpers for goalposts, kids playing on the phone, but not perhaps what uh, sport represents. I think it's, so it's a representation of it, isn't yes, it? Yes, and, and, and the fact that it, it is yeah. totally corrupting to the collective consciousness. I think it's got to the point where it's wall-to-wall. Well, we might do MU17 on sport, but for now what we'll do... <laughs> we have the house lights up, please, mm. and we'll... Um, mm-hmm. Some questions for Ray and Tom on art and... Um, mm. Olympic diving. Mm-hmm. Are there any questions? Oh, this question, sorry. Julian in the corner. That is very, very interesting. But discussions like this tend inevitably, I think, to end up focusing on the creation of art, the, the, the best art, the highest art by the best people. Now, as everyone is, is aware, of course, a lot of art isn't great. Most art isn't great. Most is mediocre. But also there's that engagement with art. There's like someone, you can go to a fantastic performance of a Bach choral mass or you can sing in a not particularly yeah. good choir. Um, you can sort of have a go. So I just wondered, simply because I hadn't been covered, I wondered if either any of you would like to say something about uh, that role, the, the participation in art. Yeah. So that if we want to call it an amateur level, because I think it has a huge value for a lot of people. Oh, I'm very glad you asked that question. May I respond, Sam? Because it just seems to me that there are different issues regarding the creator and 
the, the consumer or the customer or the recipient or the audience. It seems the creator, clearly, I mean, someone like Tom, it's, 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 it's a lifelong inquiry, investigation, quarrel with yourself, agreement with yourself, sense of satisfaction producing something like this. Uh, but for the consumer, and it's a horrible word, I can't think of another word, it, it actually still is liberating. For example, say, listening to Sally's story, I'm liberated from the present moment. I have this huge, compressed history, a whole life in 20 minutes. In other words, all of those things that uh, one seeks from art are available clearly to, to the recipient. Um, it's a different story, of course, for the artist. But the artist, of course, has the pain of actually doing the thing and getting it all wrong and getting cross with itself and throwing your brushes across the room, I suppose, and that sort of <laughs> stuff. So, in a way, the creation of art is often a, quite a, a homely sort of thing sometimes, isn't it? You're you eyes down the technical factors. I think there's, there's other... I think Julian was also suggesting, I think, maybe also participation in um, the act of making things when you might not be making them with any grand aims of publication or exhibition or performance. Mm. Um, and I think there is something in that, and I think there is something important. And just because I've now got sport seeded in my head, but it's, it's the equivalent of if I go play a game of football or play cricket, you know, both of which I'm playing at a very low level, there's that, that moment of things clicking and understanding and engaging that I presume someone going and working on a painting or writing a poem who doesn't do it as their, uh, their profession, there's still something important happening there and that they're trying to struggle to think through and express. And it's, in a way, something slightly purer because there's you know, not the concerns about where it needs to end up or what they need to do with it. So, mm. yeah. Thank you. And Christopher? Um, that was a really interesting debate. I could ask a million questions. Uh, I just wanted to go back to the Auroc, the paintings on the cave wall. Mm. We kind of recognise ourselves immediately. It's almost as if somebody's waving to us from the past. Yeah. And, and it obviously raises questions about what primitive actually means. Mm. I just wanted to ask the, one of the extraordinary things about those wall paintings was that when they came to represent themselves, something completely different happened. They were either as kind of stick figures on the walls or very symbolic. And then what one thinks, well, where does representations of ourselves finally come into the picture? And we see kind of funerary paintings in the Roman period where we look like ourselves. And then it kind of disappears again until the Renaissance. I wondered if you had any kind of thoughts about why and if there's any kind of relationship to thinking of ourselves as individuals and collectively, or, or what, what was going on? Tom? So I think, um, so it's interesting, we were talking in, Alan's, Alan was talking about the fact that we think always in narrative linear terms, both in our own life and in terms of history. And actually the problem of when we think of history as one kind of long line is we presume these shifts and these changes and these progresses, when actually it's far more a kind of a network of constant shifts and overlaying. So your, dis your description of those shifts and how we represent ourselves are totally true. And in regards to why we look to represent ourselves, I think you can think of painting as one example, as a history of what it means to see, of human... Um, what it, and I mean seeing in the broadest sense, so both to look and so to represent ourselves is to think of seeing in representing and fleshing it out and appearance, but also seeing in terms of thinking through the world and the world that's out there. Um, and I think those shifts as to why representation has come in and out 
The breaks, each break has got very different reasons, but they tell us something about those historical moments um, where there's maybe been a paradigm shift where our concerns are away from mimetic problems in painting, for example. But presumably, the idea of representing ourselves truly is a relative concept, isn't it? So what does it mean to represent ourselves perfectly or truly? Which, which I think art is always trying to do, but that doesn't... You know, the Rembrandt, yeah, the Rembrandt itself portrait is an interesting one because, <clears throat> in a way, the fact that he depicts his appearance so perfectly and incredibly is, is the absolute superficial level of what that painting's doing. Can we just go to that image, please, for, and for Ray to come in as well? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. With the cave painting, the auroch was represented in a way that we think of yeah, yeah, yeah. as mm. not us, though. Yeah. realistic. Yeah. I, I, I so why yes. does the realism not come in? It actually makes me think of Ray's thing you said yesterday about the fact is that we as individuals are only seeing out, mm. and I wondered if that was something we haven't... I think that's true. Yes. I mean, when you're representing something that is an object, that seems to me more straightforward than representing something that is intrinsically a subject. And I think representing subjectivity through the body is quite a complex and quite disturbing thing. I mean, this this particular uh, this is absolutely one of my favourite paintings, and it seems to be. Yes, he's present there in his flesh. Yes, there's a fantastic achievement of the art representing the flesh. But he's also present in the sum of his days. You know, thus is his cheek, the map of days outworn, uh, you know, from Shakespeare. And you feel that absolutely, that he's captured, if you like, not just here I am now, but this is where I've been, and this is where I will be. Does it capture that, do you think? It does for me. I think of it absolutely as, as a sense of a man steeped in time. As Proust was talking about his, you know, his heroes, that they are giants in time. And you have, this is how it strikes me, as well as just the sheer pleasure of looking at the colours. You know, and the Tom, scheme. final word on Rembrandt? In that, so it, it's interesting, you can, you can contextualise his painting and think of Rembrandt towards the end of his life, where he was, start, you know, he's a broken man who was bankrupted. Um, he'd started to commit all kinds of morally ambiguous actions. So um, he didn't marry um, his lover after his wife had died because he wanted to make sure he could inherit the money. He sold his wife's grave. He allowed his... Um, because he didn't marry his lover, it meant all kinds of awful things for her. But none of that, none of that in any way, none of that biography is actually in this painting. In, in a way, what the painting's about is a loss of all of those memories. That, of course, when he was making it, that history of self is there. But the painting is about how those moments have been lost, how those slices have been lost. I, th I think you're right. You can't infer from wrinkles what made his face wrinkled. Yes. But you can infer temporal depth. Of course. And that's, that's the sense that I get from this extraordinary painting. Just picking up something Christopher said, you're quite, I, mean, I totally agree with you when we talked about these paintings, uh, or cave paintings, are not primitive, because it's cognitively incredibly complex to set down the image of something. And clearly this is something that makes us totally different from our nearest primate kin, you know, the chimps and so on. Yeah. Can I m mention one, Final one very yeah. quick comment about, because you were asking us why, why art moves us or shifts us mm. or what it does. Mm. And so very obviously we're looking at a, an image of the Rembrandt painting. And the first time I saw this painting when I was about 15 and I'd been told you need to go see it. And I, I kind of thought that was nonsense. And um, <laughs> a couple of months later my mum took me down to London and thought I'll, I'll go and see it. And it was the first time that a painting had hit me in the same way that Melanie's song hit me, kind of viscerally, a punch mm. in the gut. And it's because Rembrandt, it feels like it's got a light in it, in a way that the image does no justice. And it's because he paints these thick layers of impasto white, 
and then these thin translucent glazes over the top, and it genuinely captures light, because light pierces all those little layers, hits the white, reflects back, and then is refracted by all these little thin, fleshy glazes. And so the paint holds light, the paint feels alive and So shifting. physically, the painting is holding and returning light. I'm sure there's probably someone who understands the physics of it. No, but no, in, in, in essence, yes, yeah. like it, re it feels like it's got a torch behind it. And I, I do think there's a mechanics of how the paint and, those, and how light is functioning within the glazes that's at play that allows it to contain that. And that, that fleshy, you know, there's the de Kooning phrase, uh, flesh is the reason oil paint was invented. And the, the thing that paint can do that a photograph can't, and photography can do all kinds of incredible things, but it can capture and play with matter in different ways because it's a sticky, messy, oily Stuff. human substance. It's, you know, it's similar to what's going on inside of us. Um, and the process of when you're working with it is that it's splitting and it's opening and Terps is breaking it apart. And then over time, as it dries, it's stitching itself back together. <laughs> but it remembers all of those processes. Or what we're looking at is a memory of... It's, it's interesting, and it relates back to Julian's question, which was essentially the difference between the creator and the recipient. It seems to me I have a comparative of what you said, a very innocent eye looking at this. And, I, and I'm almost glad to know not how it's not done, so I can sort of look past the technique and become just a recipient of mm. the effect. Although hearing how it's done is extraordinary. It is, absolutely. And the, and the parallels yes. with flesh and the light, in fact, yeah. to me, you know, sing. So thank you. Ray <laughs> Tallis and Tom DeFresco. <laughs> 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 oh, it's very lovely. Thanks.